basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. With 40 years' experience in the space sector, Serco offers a full range of operational and engineering services. Through long-standing partnerships like the one Serco enjoys with the European Space Agency, Serco contributes to programs like Copernicus and Onda, supporting open data and user experience. With best-in-class capabilities in Earth observation, Serco offers a wide range of space and ground support from data capture to data handling to data exploitation. For more information on Serco's space capabilities, visit circle.com backslash na backslash canada hello i'm ian christie and this is terranauts today we have another installment of a terranauts guide to leaving the planet when we left our story the terranauts of project mercury had just completed the first orbital flight with a live crew member a chimpanzee named enos but this um, along with the previous unmanned and unchimped orbital missions had proved out all of the systems technologies techniques and procedures that were needed to perform orbital flight and now it was go time again having gotten two americans into space in 1961 it was now time to put an american into orbit it should be noted that this was in a sense The final step needed to catch up to the Soviets in the Great Space Race since they had already launched a cosmonaut. And, although the Russians had a lot more time on orbit than the Americans would by the time they launched John Glenn, this was the the last significant achievement that it would take for NASA to feel that it had drawn even. The first American scheduled to be placed in orbit was, of course, John Glenn. His flight was originally scheduled for January 1962, but was rescheduled ten times, because of the usual issues with hardware and weather. But eventually, after more than 80 days of delay on the 20th of February, 1962, John Glenn entered his spacecraft, Friendship 7, in preparation for leaving the planet. At 14.14 Zulu time, or about 9.15 local time, the Mercury Atlas booster left the launch pad, and Scott Carpenter in the blockhouse uttered the famous phrase, Godspeed, John Glenn. The launch and boost phase were nominal, and after about five minutes, Glenn reported the shutdown of the booster and the small push from his posigrade rockets as the capsule separated from the booster. After a moment's pause to check with the global flight control team, Mercury Control gave Glenn a go for up to seven orbits, which set up a very busy ten minutes as Glenn worked to configure the capsule for orbital operations before going out of sight of the Bermuda tracking station. Now, suddenly the reality started to set in with the flight control team. The whole team was going to be tested. All of the stations around the world were going to have to play their role in making sure that Glenn and NASA had a successful flight and that he returned safely to Earth. Gene Kranz remembers, quote, After all of the attempts to get Glenn off the ground, this one seemed unbelievably easy. When it finally happened, it was smooth as apple butter. John kept clipping through the first orbit without a glitch, Teletype messages and occasional voice contacts indicated that the controller's adrenaline were pumping too. It was difficult at such times to maintain my focus. I felt a strong urge to yell out, We've got an American on orbit! Other than a small rise in temperature, 
There were no concerns as Glenn passed over the Pacific and prepared to complete his first orbit. In fact, things were going so well that President Kennedy decided that he would like to talk to John Glenn as he completed his first orbit. The request came as a bit of a surprise to the flight control team, focused as they were on making sure that there were no issues on orbit. But the audio technicians, though, had been warned ahead of time and had everything set up and ready for the historic conversation. Uh, Glenn was told to stand by for the conversation, but when the line was patched in, it was dead. It turned out that the call had actually been patched into a backroom console to a controller who was not aware of the call, and at first thought it was a prank call. When he finally was convinced that it really was the president, he was trying to figure out how to get the call patched correctly. And then Murphy took a look at the situation and decided that Project Mercury had been having just about enough fun for one mission. Suddenly a warning light flashed in Mercury Control and the system's monitor reported that he had a Segment 51 indication. Segment 51 was the code for the deployment of the landing impact bag. Suddenly speaking with the President of the United States became an afterthought. The problem, of course, is that the landing bag was under the heat shield of the Mercury capsule. If it had deployed, it meant that the heat shield had come loose and that the Mercury spacecraft and its occupant would be unprotected when they attempted to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere at more than 20,000 miles an hour. Of course, there was another even simpler explanation for the indication, and that was that for any number of reasons the switch indication was, in fact, faulty, and that the landing bag and heat shield were still firmly in place. So, two separate processes immediately began in the control center. The first was to come up with ways to confirm that the indication was real, or not. And the second was to figure out what could be done if it was. And I would point out that this is uh, more or less classically the way mission control reacts to this kind of crisis. First, confirm that you really have a problem, Second, figure out what the options are, if you do. Almost immediately a possible workaround was proposed, and that was that the retropack should be left strapped to the bottom of the capsule during re-entry. The retropack consisted of three rockets that were fired when it was time to slow the capsule down for re-entry. This assembly was strapped to the bottom of the capsule and was normally discarded after the rockets were fired. It was suggested that if the pack were instead retained during re-entry, then the strap would at least help hold the heat shield in place if it in fact had come loose. Of course, the issue was that no one actually knew what effect leaving the retropack in place would have. Would it affect the actual re-entry? How long would it take to burn away? As it burned away, would pieces come loose and damage the capsule? Would its presence affect the way the heat shield worked or even damage the heat shield? It was at times like these in Mission Control that I would expect a flight director to utter some version of the famous question, why are we only hearing about this now? Which was the flight director's way of saying, why did we not simulate this problem in training and do this analysis before we had the problem on orbit? Why are you giving me conjecture instead of hard data and analysis? I probably heard that statement at least once during every mission or simulation I participated in. And it came from times just like this one. NASA's very first orbital flight. The flight director, Chris Kraft, was being presented with competing views of whether he had a problem and how to solve it. The two positions were being presented with equal conviction by both sides of the argument, and with an attendant complete lack of hard data to support either contention. 
To make matters worse, it was decided that Mercury Control did not want to bother the crew on orbit with the problem. Although after the fourth ground station in a row asked Glenn to check the status of his landing bag deploy light, he had a pretty good idea of what was going on. This is one thing that I found a little bit different about my later experience in MCC. By the time of the shuttle and space station programs, NASA culture, I think, had developed much more in the direction that the crew on orbit should be involved in the discussion of any serious anomaly or event, and that they should actively participate in troubleshooting and fact-finding. I think, in fact, that this and some of the other events on Project Mercury convinced both astronauts and Terranauts that the best way to get to and stay in space successfully was an integrated team on the ground and in the spacecraft. Now, as the ground was dealing with the Segment 51 issue, Glenn was having his own issues on orbit. In a problem that would bedevil Project Mercury repeatedly, the attitude control system of the spacecraft was acting up. As he was approaching North America, Glenn noticed that the automatic attitude control system was allowing the nose of the capsule to drift to the right by about half a degree per second. The system was identifying the problem and was trying to correct the drift, but nothing was happening. Glenn switched the system to manual and corrected the problem himself, but when he switched back to auto mode, the same thing happened again. He could keep the capsule oriented by flying it manually, but he was constantly having to make control inputs, and every time he did, he used up some of the precious fuel that he would need to orient the spacecraft for his retro-rocket firing and control the spacecraft during re-entry. For the remainder of the flight, Glenn would spend a significant amount of his time trying to keep the capsule flying straight while using as little fuel as possible. And I think it's worthwhile here to take a short digression to talk about attitude control. And by this, I do not mean the daily struggle of any parent who has teenagers. In this context, we are talking about the control of the direction in which a spacecraft is facing while it's flying in orbit, but also, and particularly, as it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. This is a topic that is going to continue to come up over the course of Project Mercury and Gemini and Apollo. And if you listen in on conversations between the International Space Station and the ground, especially during rendezvous operations, You'll probably hear it discussed even today. I think there are two reasons for this preoccupation with attitude control, especially in the early days of the space program. The first is that it was really important. The second is that it was something that was in some ways completely beyond the experience of the system designers, flight controllers, and astronauts. And critically, it was a problem that was pretty much impossible to simulate without actually going to space. So, first of all, why was attitude control so critical? Well, the short answer is that the life of the astronaut and the success of the mission depended on it. That's because in order to perform a successful re-entry, the retro rockets had to be fired at the right angle. And the effect of an incorrect orientation when they were fired ranged from an inaccurate re-entry that landed nowhere near the recovery teams to a much more rapid re-entry than planned that could be extremely uncomfortable or even dangerous for the capsule and its occupant, to a completely failed attempt at re-entry, stranding the capsule and the astronaut in orbit. But given that the attitude requirements for re-entry were not all that stringent, and given that the Mercury astronauts were drawn from the ranks of the best test pilots in the world, surely getting the capsule oriented correctly for one rocket burn was not going to be that difficult. Well, It was certainly hoped it would not be, but it was feared that it might be. 
And to understand that, we need to think about how the conditions in the Mercury capsule were different than flying a jet. First of all, the astronauts had very limited visibility outside. There was a small portal on the side, but to see outside and forward, the astronaut had to look through a periscope with a fairly limited field of view. If that field of view didn't happen to be oriented towards something, like the Earth or the horizon, that gave visual cues, it wasn't really very useful. But importantly, however, the astronauts would also lack a lot of other information that they were used to having to rely on to help orient themselves, and that's because they would lack one very important thing, gravity. You see, normally human beings rely on, broadly, two sensory systems, visual and vestibular, in order to give them a sense of direction and balance. In the Mercury capsule, the visual system, as we see now, was pretty restricted or even cut off. And the problem, of course, is that in zero-g, the vestibular system was also expected to be compromised, although in the early days of the space program it was not clear how much of a problem this would be. And that's because the vestibular system, which is basically a system of tubes inside your inner ear, is effectively designed by evolution to work in an environment there is where there is one unique direction, known as down, and which is provided by gravity. Our whole sense of balance and direction is normally oriented around this cardinal direction, or more appropriately, its opposite, which we call up. We, and our inner ears, live in a world where we are constantly aware of the direction of up. Normally our eyes help us with this determination, and the world makes sense. But it has long been known that when our eyes and our ears send our brains different messages about the direction of up, confusion, disorientation, and even violent incapacitating nausea can result. In space, without gravity, the vestibular system would be robbed of its sense of up, there was some limited research to show that this would not be incapacitating, uh, since short durations of weightlessness on board aircraft and other studies had shown that humans can handle short periods of weightlessness without dramatic ill effects. But there were still a lot of unanswered questions about prolonged exposure to zero-g and to the combined effects of limited or contradictory visual cues and zero-g. After 60 years of experience, we understand a lot more about the human vestibular system and how it reacts to weightlessness. And it has to be said that these fears were not entirely unfounded. Many astronauts and cosmonauts have experienced a form of motion sickness dubbed space sickness, and some, in fact, have been affected to the point of incapacitation. Of the early space travelers, uh, German Titov, the second cosmonaut, was badly enough affected by space sickness that he became the first human to vomit in space, which process I will not dwell on further and leave to your imaginations. I also happily leave to your imagination the scene that would have confronted the crew who had to clean and inspect his capsule post-flight. At any rate, it has to be said that the concerns uh, of the system designers and mission controllers were not really that an astronaut would be completely incapacitated in zero-g. There was a body of evidence that clearly indicated that was unlikely. But there was an open question about how they would perform and how they would be able to pilot an unfamiliar vehicle in an unfamiliar environment. Even the most experienced pilots can experience spatial disorientation at times when their vestibular cues do not agree with visual ones. At times like these, pilots are taught to trust their instruments and ignore what their body is telling them to be true. In an airplane, where the nature and calibration of those instruments are well understood, 
that would not have been a problem. But that was the final layer of uncertainty in the Mercury capsule. The instruments for determining spacecraft orientation were also experimental to some extent. They were designed carefully to operate in the weightless environment of space, but they, like the astronaut, could not be fully tested until they'd been in orbit. In the end, as John Glenn's flight showed, both human and instruments performed adequately, but really not a whole lot better than that. The horizon sensor on the spacecraft, which was effectively supposed to determine up from down, was not in retire entirely reliable and, in fact, was almost useless at night. The gyroscopes that once oriented or caged should have maintained consistent attitude reference did not, at least not consistently, and although the human in the loop proved more than capable of flying the spacecraft manually, even a test pilot as experienced as John Glenn turned out to be only okay. Post-flight analysis showed that of all Glenn's attitude control inputs, only a bit more than half actually contributed to reducing the attitude errors of the spacecraft. The other half were actually in the direction of the error rather than away from it. This is a quite common phenomenon called pilot-induced oscillation, or getting behind the curve in pilot speak. And while this level of proficiency was more than sufficient to pilot French at 7 successfully, it was not a particularly efficient solution to the problem, and it contributed to a fuel consumption problem that increasingly preoccupied John Glenn on orbit as the second orbit ended and his final orbit began. On the ground, the preoccupation was, naturally, the resolution of the Segment 51 problem. After the second orbit, the flight control team was pretty much resolved that they had about all of the information and analysis they were going to get. As Gene Krantz wrote, quote, The last orbit was a stalemate. No more data was coming. The best judgment of the engineers was that there was sufficient attitude control for re-entry with the retropack attached. The straps would burn off during entry and should not induce any landing position errors. But Kraft restated his position. It is an instrumentation problem. The heat shield is still attached. If we burn a hole in the damn heat shield, we're going to kill Glenn. Williams, rising to the emotion of the decision, chimed in, Chris, if you're wrong, we're going to kill him too. Unquote. As Friendship 7 passed over Hawaii, the ground finally put Glenn fully in the picture and asked him to perform one final test by putting the landing bag switch to auto. If the bag was already deployed, the light would come on. It did not. To Kraft, this was all the proof he needed, and he instructed the team to prepare for a normal re-entry. But Walt Williams, Kraft's boss, was still convinced that leaving the retropack on was the safest choice, and he overruled the decision at literally the last second. It added a moment of high drama to the final act of John Glenn's flight. The flight controller suffered through the final minutes of his flight, not knowing for sure whether they had made a decision that might cost John Glenn his life. Glenn, too, was a bit nervous at having a new procedure imposed on him at literally the last minute. He was also struggling with the fact that he had burned too much fuel fighting to keep the capsule aligned for the last two orbits, and he literally ran out of gas while he was still decelerating. It made for a bit of a wild ride for the last couple of minutes of his descent before the drogue parachute and then the main parachute finally deployed more or less perfectly, and he splashed down just a few miles from the destroyer Noah that raced to pick him and Friendship 7 out of the ocean. John Glenn was home after a four-and-a-half-hour trip that took him around the planet three times. And in a very real sense, NASA was home too. NASA was finally, 
truly, a space agency, an organization dedicated to put humans and their inventions into space and bringing them back again safely. It was time to celebrate. Part of the celebration included the announcement that the NASA manned spaceflight program would have a new home, literally. Until this time, Project Mercury and the new follow-on programs of Gemini and Apollo had been using space at the Langley Research Center, which was the original home of NASA's precursor, NACA. But what started off as a space task group of about 100 was rapidly becoming multiple programs with staff rapidly approaching 1,000. They needed their own facility, and they got one. It was announced that all of NASA manned spaceflight programs would relocate to a new manned space center in Houston, Texas. Of course, this would one day become the Johnson Space Center, and it has arguably been the spiritual home of the American Terranaut ever since. From this facility, NASA would design, develop, and control the missions that would take humans to the surface of the moon and back. From here, NASA would develop and fly the space shuttle over 130 times. And from here, NASA would and does manage humanity's full-time and continuous presence in space aboard the International Space Station. But in 1962, it was, frankly, a cow pasture on the shores of Clear Lake, a small embayment off the Gulf of Mexico, halfway between Houston and Galveston. While the facilities were being designed and built, the NASA teams of mostly young engineers bought houses in the southern suburbs of Houston, moved their families to Texas, and rented office space wherever they could find it until they could move to their permanent homes on site. The shift to a new permanent home for NASA's human spaceflight effort was emblematic of the general shift in the program as well. No longer was NASA merely trying to catch the Russians to get a human into orbit. NASA's sights were now firmly set on the moon. President Kennedy's challenge of the previous May had been firmly taken up by NASA. While Project Mercury remained the tip of the spear, increasingly the main effort at NASA in terms of personnel and resources, were the programs that would follow Mercury, the first Gemini, and then Apollo. The Gemini program, which was set to follow Mercury, was designed to prove out many of the technologies and techniques that would be needed for a trip to the moon, including staying in space for up to two weeks, getting outside the capsule and actually walking in space, and spacecraft rendezvous and docking techniques. The Gemini program would also be the first program where the program and the hardware were designed by a team that actually had experience going to space. As such, even before John Glenn's flight, experienced designers and flight planners and controllers had started to move from Project Mercury to the Gemini program. But, undoubtedly, the growing 800-pound gorilla inside the NASA house was Apollo. Even before President Kennedy's announcement, a significant amount of effort was being deployed to the large booster program known as Saturn, particularly by Werner von Braun's group in Huntsville, Alabama. And particularly since the Mercury program had outgrown Huntsville's Redstone booster vehicle once it had graduated to orbital flights. With President Kennedy's announcement, however, the Saturn booster project morphed into the Apollo program, which had the moon in its sights. As technicians, engineers, and project managers began to grapple with the staggering challenges of not only getting to the moon, but landing on it and coming home, the scale of the effort required was becoming starkly apparent. From the comfortable seat of the future, it's hard for us to appreciate just how much of a challenge the moon mission posed for an agency and, frankly, a species 
that had just begun to experiment with putting objects in low Earth orbit. Although the Russians and the Americans had managed to launch objects fast enough to escape the Earth's gravity, these were small probes weighing a few hundred pounds. The fact that these missions were justifiably seen as pushing the envelope of human engineering is actually a measure of how far that human engineering had to go to accomplish the lunar missions. These early missions had proved the basic concepts required to leave the Earth's orbit, but they also reconfirmed just how much energy it was going to take to accelerate a manned spacecraft to the velocities that would be needed to reach the moon. And that was just the first step. While the Russian Luna program had managed by 1962 to launch rocket, rockets at or past the moon, uh, there still had been no successful attempt at actually accomplishing the feat of getting into orbit around it, much less landing on it, much less coming home again from the encounter. In short, there was a long way to go and a short time, now less than nine years, to get there. And so NASA was recruiting talent wherever it could find it. In the time from the announcement of the new Manned Space Center in late 1961 until the move got started in March of 1962, NASA staff doubled again to almost 800 personnel. The expanding NASA bureaucracy caused significant changes in the Project Mercury control room. As more of the levels of management expanded, so did the opportunities for the original Project Mercury flight controllers to move up into those roles. And as the first generation of NASA flight controllers became the first generation of NASA, NASA mission and project managers, they made room for new faces. Some of these were fresh new faces straight out of colleges and universities. Some of them were, were flight controllers that had already paid their dues in the remote sites of the Project Mercury Global Network. Increasingly, though, the flight control room, and in fact NASA itself, was being populated by engineers and technicians that had, quite literally, never had any other job. NASA was developing its own identity and its own culture. And so Project Mercury approached their second orbital flight with increasing confidence and a feeling that the wind was in their sails. This feeling of optimism was tinged by a decision in March 1962 that Deke Slayton, who had been scheduled to fly the flight, would have to be removed because of an abnormal heart condition that had been detected during his initial astronaut training at the time, it was a bit of unwanted controversy that roiled the waters after John Glenn's flight and was made more poignant by the reaction of the United States and the world afforded John Glenn after the flight. Glenn became a genuine modern American hero and a household name around the world, a fact that was not lost on the other astronauts, most of whom were eagerly awaiting their chance to get aboard a spacecraft. So, when the decision was made that the astronaut who would replace Slayton was not his backup, Wally Shearer, but rather John Glenn's backup, Scott Carpenter, eyebrows were raised even further. The argument in favor of the assignment, put forth by Carpenter himself and supported by Glenn, was that the time spent preparing for a flight in the simulator and in simulations was truly invaluable, and that Carpenter had already more time preparing to fly than any other astronaut. And the argument does, in fact, make a certain amount of sense, given that by the end of his mission, Carpenter had actually spent more time aboard and simulating John Glenn's Friendship 7 than he would piloting his own Aurora 7. And so the scene was set for NASA's second attempt at human orbital flight, which would turn out to be both very successful and, to some extent, quite controversial, at least to some observers. But that's a story for next time. That's all the time we have for today. 
Thanks for joining me for this installment of A Terranaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet, and thanks for listening to Terranauts. If you're enjoying the podcast, please remember that you can help the podcast by rating us and leaving a review on your podcast service, by recommending us to a friend or several friends, and by responding to the podcast with a comment or a question. We answer all the mail. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.